We're going to continue worshiping through time in his word. We've sang, we've experienced God's presence. And um, the other side of worship is that God talks back to us. And that is amazing. One that he hears our worship through Christ, but also that he actually says, I will speak to you through my word. It is alive and it is living. And every part of it is profitable for rebuking and training in, in righteousness and correction and encouragement. And so we're going to continue to worship the Lord through his word. So I'm going to pray and then we'll open it up. Dear God, I do ask right now that you would speak through your servant. Lord, I'm unworthy to stand before your people, that I'm a, a sinner, that I've fallen short of the glory of the Lord. I thank you for grace, grace that you give to me, the work of your spirit that will not leave me nor forsake me, the gift that you've given me for the body to be able to encourage them in your word to show them the truth. I do pray now that by your spirit that you would do that, that we would be in awe of you for Christ's sake. Amen. All right, so uh, you probably saw in your bulletin that I did a change a little bit. I was going to read Nehemiah myself, but considering the length of the service and the length of the passage, I just kind of cut that out. So I'm not going to read it. I will kind of catch you up to what's going on in Nehemiah 3. We're in Nehemiah 3 now, and uh, if you remember, Nehemiah was in Susa, in the citadel, the fortified city, where he was a cupbearer to Artaxerxes, and he had gotten bad news about what was happening in Jerusalem, the place where his fathers were buried, the people of his own flesh, and he grieved because the walls had been burned down, the gates had been burned down, and the exiles uh, who had returned were in shame. And so we, he makes this journey by God's grace. He gets to he, Artaxerxes, lets him go. And then he gets there and we're here now where they can actually start building. And you're going to see it all in this text. It's a bunch of names. It's a bunch of what they did. And it's a little bit of background about who they were. But we believe that at every uh, jot and tittle, as a seminary professor of mine used to say, is God's word, even Nehemiah chapter three. So um, we're gonna dive in. So today was a special day because you saw it. Uh, you just experienced, we brought new members into the life of the church. And we do this twice a year. I think I've shared that already. And um, we really want Redeemer to be a place where you can connect with people, whether it's growth group or Sunday school or some informal gatherings where it's not programmed or planned out that you just start to have an affinity for this local expression of believers. We want to encourage you and to work at feeding you week in and week out when I'm here or anyone is in the pulpit. Uh, we want to be able to shepherd your souls. And that's important. But there's another side to membership that is also equally important. That when you come into the life of not just Redeemer, but any church, that it, it's not just about you being cared for, which is important. I do not want to undermine any of that. But you're, you are coming into the life of a body that works. A body that is active. 
a body that has a unique vision to be believers in Christ, walking together, working this out right here in this city, right here in this place, that we would make our city aware, our neighborhood aware of the beauty of the gospel of Christ, not just in what we talk, but in what we do and how we live. That joining any church is joining to be cared for and to serve and to love, but you're also aligning yourself with a living, working body. Notice that when I asked the new members this question, do you promise to protect and participate in the worship? That's one part. And the work, the work, you see that? You see the, the vows that we just made. Worship, that's this right here. And the work of the church. And the answer was in the affirmative. So I like to do weddings. I like to go weddings, go to weddings, right? Because there's a part of weddings where it makes me think about my wife. And it makes me think about the vows that we've made to one another. And it makes me just remember what I'm a part of. And so when we have new members who join, I want to put that upon our current members that it's not just about them, that when they join, if we're looking at it the right way, that we too are being reminded of our own membership. And so what I want to talk about this morning is work. That what you see in this passage is a group of people who are doing work. And so we come together in our Sunday attire, suits, dresses, skirts, whatever you name it. But that should not be the only attire we wear if we're believers. There's a time to put on tennis shoes and to put on some gloves. There's a time to put on some shorts. And there's a time to work, not in this room where the temperature is controlled by a thermostat, but that we're sort of out here. And that's what you see happening in our passage, that they have been rebuilding Jerusalem, they have rebuilt the temple, and now they're outside. They're outside working. Now, what I wanna do is just show a, a, a brief map. Jimmy, will you show the first one? So this is Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. I know that you cannot read this. I don't anticipate you being able to read it. But in, in Nehemiah's day, Jerusalem was a, probably about 40 acres. I mean, it grew over, uh, especially under Herod's reign, that it, it expanded more and there were more building projects and the temple had other things added to it. But the temple is somewhere up here. And this little yellow line right here, this is this wall that goes all the way around the city. And I'll give you some dimensions later, but that's what they're building. They're leaving the temple, and now they're building all around the city. Now, here's the thing. Thank you, Jimmy. Here's the thing about God. You know, God didn't need them to build the city. You know, we believe in a God who spoke the world into existence that he spoke into nothing and made something. He spoke into darkness and said, let there be light. He spoke and said, let there be a sun, let there be a moon, let there be water, let there be animals. And so when you read this whole mission for God to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall, the first thing we have to say is he didn't need us to do it. That at any moment he could have spoken these very words that that very city that was plummeted, 
that every single stone that was overturned, every single piece of wood that was burned, every single, every single building that had been destroyed, that God Almighty had it in the very powerful word of his own to say it all comes back together. And everything, no matter where it was, would have fused back together. But here's the beauty. That is not how God chooses to rebuild. He chooses to be re rebuild by inviting his people to enter into the work that he's doing. And this is not the first time we see this in the Bible, that when God made Adam and Eve, he gave them dominion over the earth. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and rule and subdue it. And so being created in the image of God necessarily means that as he creates, we go and work. He's a God who works. And so this rebuilding, it's an invitation by God to enter into what I am doing. And that is the significance and the importance of work. And that's the first thing I want us to look at is the importance of human work. Now, it might appear on the surface that the, the primary reason that they're building this wall is for their personal protection and for their personal safety. It might be tempting to think that this is why they're building but here's the thing, we have to remember that everything that they're doing is not primarily for them. Yeah, it's going to provide them safety. Yeah, the temple will provide them somewhere to worship. Yeah, Jerusalem will provide them for a place to be and exist as a people. But isn't it true that God's purposes are always higher than ours? That, that, that what if... The wall, what if the city, what if the building, what if the preservation of these people, what if the greater need is not for human security, that, that this wall is being built because God needs the wall, the city is being rebuilt because God needs the city, the temple is being rebuilt because God needs the temple, the people of Israel are being preserved when they're dangling by a thread because they've sinned against God because God says, I need Israel. Now, here's the thing. Why does God need Jerusalem? Why does God need the wall? Why does God need the temple? Why does God need the people? Because God has promised in the Old Testament that I will send my Messiah and he will be a Jew. And he will come from the offspring of Abraham and he will come from the offspring of David. Therefore, I will not let Jewish people be wiped across the face of the earth. I promise that my Messiah will live and walk around Jerusalem. Therefore, I will not let Jerusalem stay in decay. I promise by myself that I will deal with my people through my temple, but I have another temple coming. And until another temple comes, I need this temple rebuilt right now so that we can meet. You see, when you, you, you stay down low and think that what they're doing is primarily for personal security and personal comfort, here's where you can apply this text in the wrong way. And it's happened. They are building this wall for their protection. Therefore, when I read the text, I can apply the text to my life and say that as Nehemiah instructed them to build the wall, I need to build a wall around my life or a wall around my country or a wall around my neighborhood or a wall of, I mean, I need to insulate myself from the bad people. We're all the bad people. And that's how people will apply the text. Let's just build a wall and be safe in here. And that pushes up against everything that Jesus has come to do. And I'll show you why. 
The first way it pushes up against this is because when Jesus Christ was born and raised and in his final week of his life, do you remember what he did when he went into Jerusalem, the city that they're rebuilding? He says, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, if you had only known your day of visitation. And he cried. He went into the temple. You remember when he went into the temple? And he turned over everything in the temple. You have turned my father's temple into a den of robbers. It is supposed to be a house of prayer. And then he teaches in the temple. Then he walks out and he looks at it. Okay, I tell you, there's coming a day when not one single stone of this temple will be standing. It's a temple that they rebuilt. You see the in and out? And where was Jesus crucified? He was not crucified in Jerusalem. He was crucified outside of the gate. Now, the second, the second, right here. This is Jerusalem in Jesus' day. This is the wall. You know where Jesus was crucified? Right there. Not inside the city. He actually had to be taken out of the city through the gate and crucified somewhere over here. Now, why is that important? It's important because when the author of Hebrews wrote, listen to what he writes in Hebrews 13. So Jesus suffered outside the gate. What gate is he talking about? He's talking about that wall, that structure that they built. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go outside the camp, outside the camp, and bear reproach that he endured. For here, here in Jerusalem, we have no everlasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Do you see what happened through the ministry of Jesus? He came into Jerusalem, fulfilled the city, fulfilled the temple, and then walked right outside of the wall that they built and then was crucified. And you know what God is saying? That's what's happening. When Jesus came, he says, we don't have a city there. We long for the city that is to come. And so of the temple that Ezra built, he says, it's going to be torn down. A greater temple is here. Of the city that they rebuilt, it's going to be done away with. There's going to be a new Jerusalem coming from the heavens. And of the wall that they built, he says, I'm going to walk through it and be killed outside. Why? Because you need a wall greater than brick and mortar and wood. That as we take the gospel out, as we are salt and light of the earth, as we are the city on the hill that cannot be hidden, as we are the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people for God's own possession, that he has called from darkness into his marvelous light, that we would go forth amongst the Gentiles, that they would see us and that they would turn and praise the Lord, that as we do that missional turn where we're going out into darkness, guess what? We're going to run into opposition. We don't need a wall to protect our earthly goods. They're fading away. We need a greater wall of greater security. And it is found in Christ and in Christ alone. So we can't apply this text and say 
that the emphasis is on the wall. Therefore, I should be like Nehemiah and build a wall. That is not taking what they're doing through the cross and through the work of Christ. It is insufficient. What this does, though, it does free us then. Okay, thank you, Jimmy. I think it frees us then when we deal with the wall and what it means and what it meant. It frees us to not look at what they built, but to look at what they did. And I think that is crucial. That if we want to look at the form, we would not in our right minds, think about it, we would not say, let's go back and rebuild Jerusalem. We would not say, let's go back and rebuild the temple. We would not apply that that way because we know that the ultimate temple has come. But what it does allow us to do when we know that this wall is functioning first for God, for God to keep the remnant safe until Jesus comes, what we can do is extract the wall and say, okay, what did they do and how did they do it? They worked. That what you see sort of coming out of this passage is work, it's blood, it's sweat, it's tears, it's hard work that people are using their hands and their minds and their energy and their creativity, and they did something for the glory and the plans of the Lord. We learn right here, right now, that our faith is not spiritual alone or emotional alone, that it has physical elements to it, that he wants our hearts and our souls, but he wants our hands and our feet and our minds and our time, that that's what this is getting at. How did they carry out this important work? The first way they, were, they did it was with this idea that it was holy and sacred. Now, when you look at your passage, we can't lose sight of what the people are doing. They are building a wall and they are doing this without any modern technology. There is no such thing as a post hole digger, no such thing as a planer saw, no, I mean, a backhoe, all of this modern stuff that we would sort of import onto this, this piece of scripture, it says no, that they're building a wall that is probably two and a half miles long, that it is probably 39 feet high, that it is probably eight feet wide, right? I mean, think about the size, the sheer size of what they're doing. And they are doing this without the technology that we have today. That when you look at the topography of Israel, you see it in the text that there's a valley gate. And you know to have a valley, you have to have two mountains. And the valley gate is right down here. So they are taking all of this wood and you have the, the ascent and up near the temple, the higher points. And they are taking all of this wood and all of this material and they're walking and they're sweating. And they're, they're, they're blistered. Their hands are getting blistered like they are physically doing work. And you know what God says about the work that they're doing? That it is holy. Look at what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. Now, if you go back to the, uh, Jimmy, can I get that one more time? that those two towers were up here, the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. And what, what we're seeing happening is, is when the high priest consecrated this, that more than likely he walked this entire wall 
and set it all apart as holy. From the beginning until the end, it is all holy. Now, this normally does not happen in Scripture. You normally do not see, one, the high priest consecrating work outside of the temple as holy. Typically, the people are consecrated or the materials inside of the temple are con they're consecrated, but this is different. The high priest, this is the, uh, the first time and the only time in Nehemiah or Ezra where he is denoted as the high priest. He sets it apart as holy. There's a, a, a rabbinical scholar by the name of Tamara Eskenazi, and she writes this, this double reference of consecration is of special importance. Some, some scholars consider this reference too odd to be correct, and they amend the text. Some will translate that the priest repaired, but that is not what the Hebrew says. The priest set it apart as holy. This is the first time in all of Ezra, Nehemiah, where the high priest is specifically designated as such. This is not an accident. His credentials are here to communicate the full religious significance of this task. The holiness associated with the house of God is being extended beyond the temple to the work associated with building this wall. Hard, gruesome, sweaty, dirty work. Nehemiah says, it's holy, it's sacred. It can be done unto the Lord that they're working under this gaze that what they are doing with their hands outside is just as holy as what happens in the temple. They're doing this work with this sense that they need one another's diversity of gifts and abilities. That when you look at this text, you, you get a bunch of names, but what I love about it is you also get more information. So, for example, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, who is the high priest, he rose up with his brothers, the other priests, and they built the sheep gate. All right, so if you just keep on reading. So that, that literally means that the high priest and the other priests worked on a gate. Look, look at the next verse. And then the, the men of Jericho, they worked. Zakur, who was an individual, he worked. The sons of Hassanah, he worked, they worked on the fish gate. Merimoth, I mean, you're getting this beautiful sense of diversity. Meshulam worked on the gate of the Yeshua. Uziel, the son of Hariah, he was a goldsmith and they repaired. Hananiah was a perfumer. I mean, a perfumer, he's repairing. Rephiah, son of Hur, who was a ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, he repaired. Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, he repaired. Look at verse 12. Him, look, underline that. He repaired, he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah, the people west of Jerusalem, they repaired the valley gate in verse 9. I could go on and on and on, but here's what you see. You see diversity. You see the high priest swinging a hammer next to a layperson. You see a governmental official, official working next to people who don't even live in Jerusalem. You see sons and you see daughters and you see a man who works in metallurgy and forging fine metals, and you see a perfumer, someone who makes perfume and ointments. 
that what you, when you look at this text, what you get a picture of is everyone is chipping in. Everyone is on deck. Doesn't matter who you are, what skills you have, you have something to contribute to this work. And everyone in all of their diversity, they're working right here together. That that's the way. They're working under this gaze that what we're doing is holy and what we're doing is being accomplished through the diversity of gifts and diversity of skills and diversity of talents. And in all of that diversity, there's also unity and you see it. I mean, think about it. I, I don't know what this looks like, but this looks like a recipe for disaster. I mean, you put me on a mission to Broadmoor House for two months. I can do a little bit, right? I mean, Jimmy and some of the crews that he's bringing in there, they know how to do everything. You put me, a preacher man, and I, now I got a technical background, so I could do some of the stuff. But can you imagine what the, the, the awkwardness? You're a high priest in your high priestly garb, and you're consecrating everything, and you're out here in the hot sun. Can you imagine the joke that's going on between them? Preacher, you leave this to us. Let, let us do this, right? You, you're getting out of your lane, preacher. Can you imagine? I mean, like... This guy brings his daughters out. He probably doesn't have any sons. Can you imagine what's, they're human, right? So can you imagine what's going through their minds? You got this little guy with his little boys and his little boys are over here working. And then you got this man, he doesn't have sons and he comes out with all of his girls. I bet my girls can work circles around your boys, right? <laughs> and you got this guy over here, you know, hey, hey girl, let, let a man do that, right? I mean, th think about what it's like when you have all of these different people you got a governor who rules, who is not in a position of leadership right now. You don't run this. You can run your part of the political world, but right here, you're just like us. This is a recipe for disaster. Now, here's the part that gets me, that when most uh, scholars look at these names, so you have like the valley gate, and that, that gate literally let out into the valley, right? You have the sheep gate, and so there... We believe that, that that northern gate to the, uh, I guess, northeastern, close to the temple is where the sheep would be paraded in. They have a fish gate. And so the fish is the most, fish gate was the most, nor the northernmost gate because the Mediterranean Sea was, was due north. And so they believe that that is where they imported food. So when you look at some of these, uh, these names, that, that there's a, a literal aspect to it. Now, here's the thing. There's something called the dung gate. And it's right there in verse 14. Can you imagine what it's like when Nehemiah, and this, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing this, it probably went something like this, that when they're trying to figure out who's going to go work where, who wants to go work where David is buried? Who wants to go over there at, at the house of the mighty men? Who wants to go work in the city of David? My hand is being raised right there. David was a rock star. I will go work where he lived and where he's buried. I will go in and manicure that. Who wants to go to the dung gate? My hand is not going up. <laughs> That's where the refuse of the entire city was sent. Anything unclean was sent down that gate. And if you notice where it is, it is the, the opposite end of the temple. The temple is due north. The dung gate is down here, down south. 
And you want to know the image. I mean, think about the imagery. Who wants to go work at the dung gate? I don't, right? And yet what you see in the text, God's people will even go work and do dirty things. I will go and work in areas that are considered unholy if it is good for the whole. I will work with and next to whomever because we are all sacrificing our desires for a greater cause that you see it over and over again, that one of the words that's used over and over again is that this fact that this person labored next to this person and this person labored next to this person. And then when you read in there, you'll see this, this phrase where Eliashib, the high priest, he's consecrating everything. And while he's consecrating everything, there are other men working on his house. And so people are working for each other, repairing his house, and he's consecrating the whole wall. And then it says that they worked the, the part of the wall opposite their house. And so you get this beautiful picture of unity where everyone is thinking about the whole, thinking about the concerns and the needs of the whole. That they're doing this work, this heart-wrenching, hard, sweaty, dirty, holy work with much diversity and with much unity. Now, how is this relevant to us? In the same way that those believers were consumed with holy, dirty, sway, godly work in order to prepare for the coming of the Lord, we living right now are being extended that same invitation. God doesn't need Redeemer. He's inviting us to enter into what he is doing to make all things new. He's inviting us to invest in the things of this life now that can matter for eternity. He has saved us by grace through faith, not apart, not because of our works, but he has saved us so that we might be set apart to then go and do works. We will go out and do greater things in him. And that doesn't mean that we're about to somehow do more stuff than Christ. But he is saying that he is making for himself a people who will go out and who will work and who will engage. that of all the entities and institutions on the planet that Jesus has committed himself to the church. The mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, he would use the church to display the manifold wisdom of God. That God the Father put all things under the feet of Christ and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. And he tells the church that you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Samaria, to Judea, to the ends of the earth. You will go. You will walk. You will work. You will serve. You will sweat. You will be engaged. And I will give you my spirit to empower you. And you can work for bread that does not perish. 
that moths cannot ruin, that thieves cannot steal, that money cannot buy, that rust cannot destroy. This is the work that we are committing to when we identify ourselves with a local expression of believers. It's godly, it's right, it's holy, it's dirty, it's diverse, it requires unity, and it's difficult. It's hard, right, because of time. You mean to tell me on top of my career and raising my children and my job that I'm also supposed to save some time and energy for the work of the church? That in this passage, you get people doing more than what they're used to doing. This guy's a political leader and he's working on the wall. This is the high priest and he's working on the wall. This is a perfumer and he's working on the wall. This isn't the type of work that's affiliated with our careers. This is the work of the kingdom where God's people will go above what we have to commit to. And that makes it hard. That makes it hard because of time. It makes it hard because of energy. It makes it hard because of ability. I don't know where I fit in, Pastor L. It makes it hard because it doesn't feel holy to wipe diapers, right? It doesn't feel holy to, to, to clean dishes when we have a fellowship meal. It doesn't feel holy to walk down the street when it's raining. It doesn't feel holy to do all of those things. But here is what we see in the text. All work for the glory of God is good and it's holy. It's pleasing. It's acceptable in his sight. It's hard because I think we think that the work of the church is to be done just by paid staff and the clergy. We'll just hire enough people and that'll, that'll fix it. I'm a man. I'm mortal. I cannot carry the weight of this church on my own. And elders are mortal and deacons are mortal. That this is why Martin Luther fought for the priesthood of all believers, that we are all the royal nation. We are all the holy priesthood. We are all set apart by God for his glory. This is what he fought for, that we are all under grace and all in need of each other and all we've been gifted, right? But that makes ministry hard in the church because we think that and what you see in this text is you got the high priest right next to a regular dude and they're getting it in together. How do we do this? Knowing we have so many other things, knowing that at times we don't want to do it, knowing that we have so many other priorities, where can we turn to so that our heart and our desire becomes in step with what Jesus would require? Like, where do we get that from? I'll tell you, the first place we go is to the gospel. When we say that we are created in the image of God, Think about what this means. Think about how you were saved. You and I were saved because our God worked. 
He worked. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every place with every spiritual blessing, even as the Father chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. It's the Father working and using his mind and his heart to set his affections upon people. And it's the second person of the Trinity who would say that I do not count equality with you as something that I will hold on to, that I will go and I will go to the earth and I will take on the form of a servant. I will do whatever it takes to save the people that you have given me. That's the second person of the Trinity, right? That is God of God who would humble himself and be stretched out naked and would be beaten so that he could save. The second person of the Trinity works as he has seen his father working. He would say of the Holy Spirit, he is the down payment. He will come upon you and he will seal you. And you cannot be taken out of the Father's hand. You cannot be cast away. Not now, not forever. The Holy Spirit is working right now in our hearts. He is working in this world. He is working through the gospel. And so when we say we don't get what it means to work and to give our lives up, we are undermining our very salvation. We were saved because our God went to work. He sweated, and he cried, and he was hungry, and he was stressed out. He came. The dung gate for humans is nothing compared to him who became the refuse of the world. We got to start there. If we have an issue with work and time and priority, we have to go back to the very gospel that we are a part of. It is a working, effectual gospel. We talk about being remade in the image of God. When he saves us, guess what? We should start desiring others to enter into this work. We should find great joy, great joy to do the work of the Lord. Y'all ever had those days where you just work so hard? You, this, you, this is not tired. This is like, I'm tired. <laughs> like, I'm just tired today. My feet hurt. My brain stressed out. Like, I'm just tired, right? But it's so good. It's the tiredness that hurts, that you have not wasted your day. You have worked and worked and worked and served. Oh, that we would find joy in the service of the Lord. What about the male-female stuff, right? That, that makes it hard. Look, I know it's stuff kind of going on out there in cyber world about gender roles and all of that. But I'm going to tell you from my vantage point at this church, I love you, women. And I thank you for using your gifts in the life of this church. And I see that this church is what it is because men and women co-labor together. I will never forget, this happened a few times, 
when I've been stressed out about a funeral and I've had someone like Monica or Sherry come up to me and say, you know what, Pastor L, you let us take care of the repast. We don't need you emailing stuff, coordinating foods. You go and devote yourself to preaching and teaching. We can handle it, right? We're about to hire our new youth director, Lord willing, and there are nine people on the committee. You want to know how many women are on the committee? Six. Six women who are making good strong decisions about who will lead our children. Mr. Arthur wrote a song from Ephesians 6, War in the Heavenlies. Do you remember when Sherry got up here and read Ephesians 6? I love to hear her read, right? That I could go on and on about the way that women in this church are coming alongside of the men and our church is better for it. It is better for for it, this is how God designed it. Can you dream with me? What would it be like if every single person in this church will be plugged into some working expression of the church? Next week, we're going to get a foretaste of it. Our children and our youth will be leading worship next week. And I'm looking forward to it. You talk about raising up the next generation of people who care about the worship and glory of the Lord. We're going to see it next week. So for some, I want to thank you. Because I know you work, you open your home. Do not. It, I hope I don't come across as kind of fussing. I'm not. I see it. Redeemer is a working church. And others, I'm inviting you to do more than sit. Come sweat with us. Come work with us. Come serve with us. I promise you, you will be blessed in that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you so much for the work that you have called us to, to use every fabric of our being to labor for the king who is risen. We thank you that our work matters. Thank you that we can be motivated not just by do better, try harder, but we can be motivated rightly by the gospel which tells us that our God has worked and is working and will forever be at work for his people. Father, help us to start small, to commit to one thing and to do it well, to do it faithfully. And we watch you bless it. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.